A mother had watched her son through the week begin to drain in energy. And by the end of the week, he had simply lost the desire to get up and get with the day. She heard the alarm go off through the door. She listened nine minutes past the alarm, or nine minutes, and uh, the alarm went off again. Apparently, she just kept punching the, he kept punching the little snooze button on top of the alarm. Finally, after three or four extra rings, she decided to take charge and she walked in and said, son, it's time to get up. You've got to get up. He peeked out from under the covers and said, give me three good reasons I have to get up. She said, well, yes. First of all, it's Sunday and you need to get dressed for church. Second, you're 43 years old and you, need, and you know better than to lie there. And third, you're the pastor of the church and they expect for you to be there. Now, like I said, it's, it's a little bit of a, a funny story, but in all reality, it could be a little difficult at times to serve as ministers. But as we'll soon see, it's a role that has been entrusted to us and we must faithfully fulfill the calling regardless of how we feel on any given Sunday morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is a conclusion of Paul's appeal for unity among the Corinthian factions. By, and what he does is he brings the discussion into a full circle. Having begun in chapters 1 through 3 with the wrong way to treat the apostles, he now elaborates right ways to consider them. And he does this by painting three pictures of the minister. He is a manager, a spectacle, and a father. In fact, Paul states the purpose of this chapter in verse 6, that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, and the message will be primarily about that. So with that, um, let's open up with a word of prayer before we get into God's word and um, ask him to speak to us. Heavenly Father, um, what a glorious and wonderful day you've created for us. And we thank you and we glorify you for being here today. As many of us are going through different things, Lord, some good, some bad, Lord, and I just pray right now that you will meet them where they're at. Lord, we want to be unified as a church. And as this church grows, we want to maintain that unity, Lord. Lord, right now we're just a small ragtag group of believers but you love us, you care for us, and you see us as kings and queens reigning with you. Lord, yes, we may be a small church, but for you, it's still your church, Lord. And you still care for it, you still nurture it, you still want what's best for it. Lord, again, let us hear this message this morning and understand what you're saying. 
open our eyes and ears and hearts to, to every word, every sentence that we read, and, and the message in general, Lord. Fill this room with your love. Fill this room with your spirit. Praise you. Glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray this. In Jesus, I mean, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be in, like I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it's required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. In order that they might properly appraise Paul and the other apostles, he begins this section by informing them, informing the Corinthian Christians, how God measures and evaluates Christian service. And he begins, his, he first presents three characteristics of a minister. Characteristic one, they're servants of Christ. Now the literal meaning of the Greek, of this Greek word. Now, let me, let me back up a little bit. When the Bible talks about servants, there's usually two types. There's the doulos, and then there's this kind here. It's the hooperates, it means under oarsman. Now, what is an under oarsman? An under oarsman was a slave on the lowest deck of a ship who simply followed the cadence, the cadence of a drummer. However, it also, this word also refers to an assistant, to someone in an official position. So one of the characteristics of a minister is someone who assists Jesus Christ. Characteristic number two, they're managers of the mysteries of God. A manager or steward, and I'll be using minister here in, in our study, is a servant who manages everything for the master but who himself owns nothing. For example, in Genesis 39, we have, a, they have a story of Joseph. He was in charge of Potiphar's household. He was the chief steward in Potiphar's household. And this is what, again, what we're talking about here. So as managers of the mysteries of God, a minister preserves, protects, and distributes the truth of God. Characteristic three, that he be, be found faithful. The key task of the manager is faithfulness to his master. Even if they don't please the other household members or the other stewards or the other servants or slaves, as long as he pleases his master, he is a good steward. So the third characteristic of a manager is someone who is faithful in managing the work that's been assigned to them by God, by the master. However, Paul is fully aware that these three characteristics will make the servant more susceptible 
to criticism and judgment. In verses 3 and 4, he points out three judgments in the life of a faithful manager, in the life of a faithful minister. The first judgment he faces is man's judgment. You see, it mattered little to Paul when people criticized him because he knew it was God who judges, and that mattered the most to him. The examination of how he managed the mysteries of God did not come from others, but came from the Lord. The second judgment faithful managers had to deal with is self-judgment. As far as Paul was concerned, there was nothing at all he had a guilty conscience about. However, he recognized that his clear conscience didn't justify him or make him innocent. Paul knew that even though he had a godly walk, his righteousness came from Jesus and not from his own personal life. The third judgment of a faithful manage, uh, manager is God's judgment. Now this is the most important and this one ought to matter the most because when each Christian stands before the Lord, it will be their final evaluation. And that's, again, God's judgment. Everything that is true about a believer will be revealed. And the faithful servants who have been faithful with the task that he's assigned them will be rewarded. In view of what he just discussed in verses 1 through 4, he now tells them in verse 5 how to apply it. Don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. Paul cautions them against judging a person's ministry at the wrong time. The Corinthians who were passing judgment on Paul were actually playing God and assuming to themselves the privileges that only God has. So he was letting them know that there's no possible way, there's no possible way at all that they or anyone else can see into the heart of a person and judge their motives. It's not until the Lord returns that he alone will truthfully evaluate the lives of his servants and their ministers. At that time, he will be able to judge not only what is seen with the eye, but also the motives of the heart. Not only what was done, but why it was done. So whether you serve as a minister, desire to one day be a minister, or you're just part of a church fellowship, you're just you know, learning and you're sitting here, verses one through five will help you get a clear picture of what a minister is. First of all, a minister is a faithful servant of Christ, tasked with, again, pres preserving, protecting, and distributing the truth of God's word. Those who are ministers or desire to be ministers, this is a great definition of what your role and function is or will be. However, I would also say that every true believer, everyone that's given their life over to Jesus Christ, that has surrendered their heart to the Lord, in a sense, is a minister. When you've surrendered your heart to the Lord and were redeemed 
from sin and death, you became a servant of Christ. As a servant, you will be held accountable for managing the tasks he's made you responsible for. This could be something as simple, faithful obedience to something greater, like overseeing the people of a church or a ministry. The more you grow and the more you mature, he will entrust you with greater responsibilities. And how you take care of those responsibilities, how you fulfill those responsibilities is up to you, but he will judge you according to how much, again, he entrusts you with. But wherever you're at now, you must serve faithfully and be trustworthy so that the master may be able to tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. He will also hold you accountable for what he has revealed to you through his word. What I'm saying is that when you stand before the Lord, you will not be able to fool him by pretending to be ignorant of what you've heard, what you've read, and what you've seen. This even applies to the words you're reading right now at this very moment. The words that you've been reading in this passage, he will hold you accountable for what you know, what you've read. You can't say, oh, I, I didn't know that, Lord. I didn't see that. I didn't read that. I, I, again, he's going to hold you accountable. He's going to say, yeah, you did. You read it. Angel explained it to you. And you just, you know, blew it off. So he will hold you accountable. Secondly, a minister is someone who will always be under the microscope. And this is hard for those who are serving. This can be hard for those who are serving. Because ministers are prone to criticisms and judgments from others. And we have to be prepared to know how to handle them. And either you can do what Paul did and just ignore it, brush it off, or you can allow it to fester until it starts to grow into the weeds, into weeds of bitterness, anger, wrath, harshness. Often though, the harshest critics will be the person looking in the mirror. And the only way you can keep this from happening is by having a clear conscience. If you're looking in the mirror and you're just not seeing the person, not, you're not liking the person you see, you see the, the filth, the sin, you know, then what we're told to do is just repent of it. Repent of it and um, confess it. Confess it and accept, ask for forgiveness and accept his forgiveness. Whatever it is that's Whatever sin is holding you down, confess it, share it, just let, give it to the Lord. And then receive his forgiveness. Have 
that clear conscience. You can have that clear conscience. And if there isn't anything, and if you do have a clear conscience, don't allow the enemy to keep accusing you of those things, of those things God has already forgiven you about. You see, when you begin to feel this way, open up your Bible. Open up the Word of God and remind yourself or allow the Lord, the Holy Spirit to remind you of what Christ did for you and who He says you are in the Lord. Who He says you are as a result of everything that Christ did for you. Knowing then that God's servants will be under a microscope, how should they conduct themselves? Well, 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us, and there it says, Be diligent to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Thirdly, a minister is aware he will be judged and held accountable by God at the right time. You see, because we are aware of this, Neither you nor I have a right to judge their lives or ministry before he comes. It says in Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge another's, another household servant? Before his Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. I know there's a lot of, and maybe you know of some, pastors and preachers out there who are just horrible, their, you know, their, their doctrine is completely off, um, and it can be very easy to criticize people like that, you know, those pastors, those leaders, those ministers, but it's not our place to judge. God will judge them at the right time. We shouldn't judge them prematurely. Now, you do have every right to walk away from anyone you believe is mishandling the Word of God and abusing his authority that's been given to him. Again, in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, it tells us to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you, that you learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord but their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of unsuspecting of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. It's important that we be patient and trust that when the Lord comes, He will rightly judge those tasked to feed and care for His flock. Until then, you ought to extend the same grace God has given you to them, to those ministers. You know, they're completely off, then just ignore them. You know, you don't have to be talking bad about them. Again, he will eventually be held accountable for what he's been teaching and, what, and how he's been leading people. So let's continue with, with the reading. I mean, I'm sorry, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn what, learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. 
The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place. Like men condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. You are weak. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up until the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. In this section, Paul clearly states the pride, that pride is the cause of the divisions that have fractured the Corinthian church. And you, you see, because of their pride, they were judging ministry by the wrong standard. The Christians at, at Corinth were measuring different men by their own personal preferences and prejudices. They were even comparing ministers with one another. So what Paul does is rather than call out those leaders and embarrass them and, and, um, and make them feel bad, Paul singles out himself and Apollos to exemplify a principle he hopes they'd follow. And again, what he's saying is, you know what, don't look at them as an example. Don't look at those leaders that are causing division. Just look to us. Look to me and Apollos as, as an example. This principle he and Apollos were modeling was to remain within the biblical standards by evaluating everything and everyone by the word of God. Because of their pride, they were boasting in their superiority and self-sufficiency. These different cliques in the Corinthian church not only saw themselves as better than others, but they also thought they could do Christianity. They thought they could do church. They thought they, they, didn't, they could do it on their own. They didn't need anybody else. They, didn't, they thought they didn't need one another. They thought they didn't need the other apostles. So Paul addresses their proud hearts with three questions. And if you, if they were to honor, uh, answer them honestly, here's what they would be. His first question would, is, who makes you so superior? And the answer is no one because of what God has done for you. What do you have that you did not receive? And the obvious answer, nothing, because everything you have comes from God. Why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? And the answer, no good reason, because what you have spiritually is a gift from God. Together, these three questions remind the 
the Corinthians that other spiritual gifts and natural blessings come from God. And therefore, it gives them no grounds for boasting, for looking at themselves and seeing, look at, look at me, look at what I've accomplished, and look at our gifts, and look at, you know, we, we're awesome. Saying no, it, 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 everything, comes, everything you have comes from God. God. With a strong dose of irony, Paul tells them in verse 8 that, a boast, that the boastful disposition of the Corinthian believers had made them rich, had made them full and rich, as if their glorification was complete. And they were already reigning as kings in eternity. He's conveying the fact that if all the blessings of the messianic age had really all come at once, then Paul and his companions would have been experiencing the same freedom from imperfection these Corinthians claimed they had. But it hadn't, which leads Paul to make uh, his final po point about their pride. Because of their pride, they weren't able to see what their heroes had become. In verse 9, he uses two metaphors to describe what he and the other apostles had become. First, he imagines himself and his companions as prisoners of war in a victory procession by the opposing army. And secondly, he envisions the frequent outcome of such capture which was being thrown to the gladiators or the wild animals in the sporting arena to ultimately die. Paul knew that ultimately it was God himself who had chosen to display in the apostles or chosen to display the apostles in a humiliating manner. While the apostles were treated as fools for Christ, weak, and with dishonor, the Christians at Corinth were acting as though they were wise, strong, and distinguished. In verse, in verse 11, he was essentially saying, it doesn't look like the hour of triumph or reigning had come, because look at us. We're hungry. We're thirsty. Poorly clothed. We're naked. We're roughly treated. And we're homeless. In spite of that, though, he continues, we labor working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. He ends verse 13 by implying that even though he and the other apostles were treated as scum and garbage, the fullness of the kingdom of God had not yet arrived contrary to the claims of many in Corinth. If the people of a church, if, the, if all of us desire to, to see a strong, or desire to see strong, fruitful growth, they or we must have a proper view of ourselves and the leaders who lead them. Church leaders ought to be seen as examples who deserve to be followed but not placed on a pedestal. 
as the pastor of this church, my desire is to exemplify qualities you can emulate. However, what I don't desire is to be put into a category that only Jesus Christ belongs in. You know why? Because I'm not him. I'm still fallible. I'm still a human being that is still going to make mistakes. I'm still going to sin. I'm still going to, you know, talk to my wife. She'll tell you how many times a day I blow it. You see, the only difference between you and I is that I'm held at a slightly different standard because of the special position he's placed me in. And yes, I'm conscious of this and understand that if I don't take care of this responsibility seriously, then I will face severe consequences for failing as a leader. I know that. And even before, as the Lord was calling me to, to lead and to plant a church, I, I remember days and times I would fall to my knees and say, Lord, I, I don't know if I can handle that pressure. I don't know if I can deal with it. Scared. I, you know my disposition. You know the kind of person I am. You know, I have blown it so many times before, and, and every, every single time, Lord has been, so what? I'm, you know, I know you, I believe in you. I, you know, I know you can do it. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I answered the call. See, again, I answered the call. And with God's strength, I will lead this church over every mountain peak and through ever, every desert valley. My, my only hope is that whoever follows my lead will understand this. I'm just a guy holding the compass God has given me. Jesus Christ is the one who guides me. And the Holy Spirit reminds me that I'm going in the right direction. Those in the church must always remember that all gifts and blessings come from God and maintain a spirit of humble gratitude for any success God allows us to have. Everything we have now up to this point as a young church, again, we're going to be celebrating two years on Father's Day. But everything that has happened, that we've been giving, given in these past two years, has, been, has come from God. God has given it to us. I'd be a fool to claim any credit for this church being able to keep its doors open for almost two years. There's nothing, again, I've, I don't have in the, the, the mindset of a successful businessman to ensure that, you know, again, everything runs smoothly. You know, I mean, I, I'm depending and trusting in the Lord. And I'm, you know, I, I'm grateful that he's provided me with great people to surround me, to help me. My children to, to help me set up. You know, Robin, who goes out and gets donuts, has gone out and gotten donuts and burritos or tacos for the, you know, since we began. You know, my good brother Isaac, who's just been such a great brother to me, great friend, you know, and all of you who've been encouraging as well. 
You know, again, all I, everything this church has has been a blessing, has been a gift from God. And I'm so thankful for that. And as a church, we ought to thank Him every time we experience a new stage of growth. Relying on my own natural gifts and talents to make this church grow, what eventually is going to happen is that my pride is going to kick in and I'll be giving myself the credit. Like maybe a lot of churches out there who have blown up and you see the pastor, the leader walking around like he's the man, you know. Yeah, no, I, I don't ever want to be in that place. You know, I always want to see whatever growth we have. And again, all of us as a gift from God. But I believe... Again, the reason I don't have any of these natural talents and gifts was so that I may clearly be able to see the blessings that come from God. Lastly, the church and its leaders should understand that sharing in Christ's sufferings is a prerequisite to sharing in His glory. You must understand as a church that suffering will come. For you as individual Christians and as a church. If the day ever comes that this, that this church ever faces persecution, we must not fear it or shy away from it. Rather, we ought to expect it and be willing to endure it. So, so far, Paul has painted two pictures of a minister. One is a manager and one is a spectacle. In these last few verses of chapter 4, Paul paints a final picture of a manager of a minister, and that is of a father. So let's pick up again and finish off chapter 4, verse, and we're going to be in verse 14. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are arrogant as though I will not be coming to you, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? In these final verses of chapter 4, Paul wraps up this section of the letter dealing with dissensions and divisions at Corinth with a more tenderly tone. He starts off, by, uh, starts off by letting them know that everything he's written thus far was as a father warning and challenging his children. He's also telling them that their local leaders were only instructors. But Paul is their spiritual father. In English, the Greek word for instructors is pedagogues. 
and that a pedagogue was a Greek slave charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of their master's children. And they were also in charge of ensuring that those children got from home to school and back again safely. So Paul, in describing, uh, so this was he, what he was saying is that those people, that's what they are, they're pedagogues. Those instructors are pedagogues. But Paul, again, was describing himself, himself as their spiritual father because of his unique relationship to this, to this congregation as their church planter and the one responsible for leading many of its members to the Lord. So as their spiritual father, he had the responsibility and authority to oversee their spiritual growth. And he had a sincere interest in their welfare. He therefore urges them to imitate him. He says, because of this, because I'm your spiritual father, follow me, imitate me. Imitate me in the way I selfishly devote myself to Christ and tirelessly love and serve those who are following him. Now to help them reach this goal, he tells them that he's going to be sending Timothy to remind them of Paul's ways in Christ. Timothy was one of Paul's most beloved travel companions. And over time, as he grew, as Timothy grew and matured spiritually, Paul knew he could trust Timothy for certain tasks. And he trusted Timothy here to preach what he preached and to teach them how to walk as he walked. In verses 18 through 21, Paul closes this four chapter section or closes this chapter with a letter, of uh, this letter with a final warning. I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. Because of the pride, some thought he would be too scared to come and confront those who were causing these problems, those who were causing these divisions in person. They thought he was, yeah, he ain't gonna come, he's just too scared. You know, we're gonna continue to do what we do and everything's gonna be okay. He's, not, he's too scared to come and confront us. However, regardless of what they thought, he tells them that he does intend to come and expose the pride of those who talk a big game but have no spiritual power. See, the presence of genuine spiritual power is what ultimately counts. For the kingdom of God is not concerned principally with words but with action. It does not consist of profession but with reality of, of the edifying manifestation of spiritual gifts, of winning people to Christ and discipling them. It also consists of moral living and appropriate, humble self-assessment. In the final verse of this chapter, he tells them that the manner in which he comes will be up to them. If they show a rebellious spirit, he will come, metaphorically speaking, with a rod. If, on the other hand, they are humble and submissive, he will come in love, 
and a spirit of gentleness. Now, sadly, I, I know that many people have gone to churches where the pastor has abused his authority. The pastor has been horrible, horrible leaders. And maybe also, maybe some of you have also grown up with horrible fathers as well. I didn't have a perfect example of a father. I, you know, the only reason I'm, I want to say a good father, hopefully, to my kids is because the Lord has shown me. He's taught me how to be a good father by looking at him. But what I'm trying to say is that because of, the, because of that, because of the horrible example of a father or that pastor or leader, they have a hard, hard time entrusting themselves to male leaders and, or ministers because of those past experiences. First of all, if that's you, if you've been hurt by a church, if you've been hurt by a pastor, if you've been hurt by a father, by any male figure, as a father myself of a beautiful young daughter of handsome young sons, I'm sorry. Truly, I'm sorry. You know, I, you know, I wish I could go back and protect you from all those harmful people, but, you know, again, this, that was your, this is your, that's your story now. That's your testimony. Secondly here, Paul demonstrates three key fatherly aspects of, that faithful ministers ought to have. And this is what you ought to look for when it comes to who you are going to entrust as a minister. It must be tender. It must be affectionate. I don't, you know, I, I'm working on this. I don't always show tenderness and affection to my boys now that they're teenagers. When they were small, I mean, I would love them and hug them and, and play with them and kiss them. You know, um, it's a little bit harder um, as teenagers because they quick to run away from me. But, um, um, but ask my daughter and I'm always, you know, just hugging her and showing her what the love of a father looks like. You know, it must be tenderness. It must be affectionate. Paul Tripp, author, he's an author, writes, The humility that only awe of God can produce in my heart produces a sincere tenderness toward people who need the same grace. No one gives grace better than a person who is deeply persuaded that he needs it himself and receives it from Christ. He then adds, it's hard to bring the gospel to people when you're looking down your nose at them. Facing others' sin, awe-inspired tenderness frees me from being an agent of condemnation or asking the law to do what only grace can accomplish and motivates me to be a tool of that grace. Those ministers, they must be imitable. Paul wrote in Titus 2.7, In everything, make yourself as an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. A good minister will have those spiritual traits you will want to imitate. They ought to model for you 
faithfulness, obedience, hard work, and proper conduct. And lastly, minister, they must be able to discipline when necessary. I don't necessarily like disciplining my, kid, my children. I don't like it, it hurts, but I do it for their own good. You know, and, and they understand that because after I'm done disciplining them, I try to make it a habit, or I have made it a habit, to, to talk to them about it. Do you know why? I don't spank them anymore, they're too old, because they'll beat me up. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I would talk to them and tell them, do you know why I spanked you? Do you know what the problem is? And I would help them, and I would say this so that they would recognize it. Tell them, okay, I don't, I don't want to spank you, just learn from the mistake. You know, now we have different ways of, of punishing them, but again, we know, we want to make sure they understand why we're punishing them. So also, the same thing applies to a minister, to those, um, a minister who serves in the church. Discipline is designed to train and restore. And the purpose, and I'll name a few purposes of discipline. It's to restore, heal, and build up sinning believers. It's to silence false teachers and their influence in the church. And it's to protect the church from the destructive consequences that occur when churches fail to carry out church discipline. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, without church discipline, communion or confession, absolution without personal confession. Now as I close here, in this chapter Paul describes for us the traits of a faithful minister. Again, he is a servant of Christ and a manager of the mysteries of God. They are faithful stewards, in other words, of the church, or faithful, they're faithful stewards of God's church who preserve, protect, and distribute the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He is to become a spectacle to the world, and that is faithfulness in service and humbleness in mind, willing to work, willing to suffer. And he is a spiritual father, tender, challenging, imitable, and able to discipline when necessary. And as I mentioned, one of the responsibilities I have as a minister, as a servant, as a manager of the mysteries of God, is to share with you, share with anybody that's here or that's listening and watching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and there may be some who haven't heard it or don't remember what that message is. Whatever the case may be, that message again is that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins, to forgive you of your sins, to free you from the power of sin and death so that you may reign with him, so that you may live with him for all eternity. 
He died. He suffered so that you wouldn't. And now all you have to do is just come to him, come to the cross and lay your sins at his feet and he will take them and he will wipe the slate clean. He will make you clean in the eyes of God. You will be forgiven and you will be a child of God. You will be his loving child and if that's you and if you've never done that if you've never accepted the Lord into your heart never given your life over to him and are ready to do that whether you're listening or watching just wherever you're at with a sincere heart with humbleness pray this prayer Heavenly Father forgive me of my sins I know that I've fallen short and I know that I've blown it I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins I believe he is Lord and that he died for me. I accept your forgiveness that you offer. So now fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may walk according to your ways, so that I may know you more. so that I may understand you more, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you prayed that, let somebody know. Talk to us. Call us, whatever it may be. But, you know, to those who are here, again, I, I want to encourage you to be united, not be divided, to look to the Lord for everything. Give him the credit for everything. So uh, with that, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for, again, for this time, for revealing your tr the truth of your word to us, for speaking to us individually and speaking to us as a church, as, as a whole. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us what you've given Fresh Vision Church so far, Lord. And so now we, as we continue to, to grow, Lord, may we, our eyes continue to stay on you. May we always have that a spirit of humble gratitude. We look to you, Lord, for everything. And we will continue just to worship you and praise you all the days of our lives. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.